We don't come to dissect your word and to feel good because we think that we have figured it out. We come to hear from you, our Creator, God the Father Almighty. So will you speak to us through your word? Will you transform us by your word? Amen. Turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 9. If you have a church Bible, that's page 894. Daniel chapter 9, and I'll read the whole of chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand 
and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. Your city, your holy hill, our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is God's word. There are a few model prayers in the Bible. This is one of them. The most famous one, of course, is Jesus' model prayer. We looked at that not so long ago on a Sunday morning. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus gave his disciples that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, not so they could repeat it like a mantra. He gave it so they could learn to pray themselves. And this prayer of Daniel's is also here to help us learn to pray. But we have something else in this chapter. We're given God's response to Daniel's prayer. And that too gives us help in learning how to pray. 
So we'll look at this chapter as it naturally divides into those two sections. First of all, a model prayer in verses 1 to 19, and then God's response in verses 20 to 27. And before we get into this, let me give you a little picture of what's going on in this chapter. Daniel is a little bit like a man who stands looking up at a great mountain in front of him. Up in the clouds, he can see a peak. And he sets off, determined to stand up on that peak. When he finally reaches the spot that he'd looked at from the ground, he has a great view. But then he notices that he's not on the true peak at all. The actual summit was not visible to him from the ground. But now he can see it. And when he climbs the true summit of the mountain, the view is even greater. That's a little bit like what happens to Daniel in this chapter. And I would suggest that if we learn from his model prayer, it may well happen to us too. So first of all, in verses 1 to 19, a model prayer. Verses 1 to 3 tell us this prayer is offered in response to God's word, asking for what God has promised. Look again at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 1 reminds us of Daniel's situation. He is in exile. He was taken to Babylon as a teenager after Nebuchadnezzar overcame his home, Jerusalem. But now Nebuchadnezzar's empire has fallen. Chapter 5 of Daniel recorded how the Medes took over the Babylonian empire. A big change has happened in Babylon. And in the midst of this big change, Daniel has been studying the scriptures. We're not told where in Jeremiah he's been reading, but his reading would almost certainly have included Jeremiah 25 and 29. Before Nebuchadnezzar ever arrived in Israel, God spoke through Jeremiah and promised this to Israel in Jeremiah 25. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. That's the land of Israel. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. Then in chapter 29, this is what the Lord says. This is to Israel. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Well, Daniel reads this. He knows he has lived to see Babylon being overthrown. He understands that according to Scripture, the 70 years of exile are up. 
But as yet, God's people have not been brought back from exile. So, Daniel tells us in verse 3, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. The fasting, sackcloth and ashes are a way of saying to God, I'm serious about this. But what exactly is Daniel doing? He's praying in response to what he finds in God's word. And he's asking God to do what God has promised to do. Or to put it another way, he's praying in line with God's revealed plans. And this surely must be the way we pray too. Most of us see the importance of reading our Bibles and reading them carefully. But how often do we close our Bible when we come to pray? As if God's word has nothing to do with our prayers. In fact, we should be praying with our Bibles open. The impetus for our prayers should come from what God has promised to do in his word. It should come from what the Bible tells us about God's character and his ways. That was the case with Daniel. Returning from exile was not Daniel's idea. It was God's promise. And that's what gives Daniel confidence and boldness to pray for it. Sinclair Ferguson says the basis for all prayer is what God has promised to do. So when we come to pray, let's keep our Bibles open. Let's form our prayers according to Scripture. Let's pray in line with what we read in Scripture. What we read about God's character and his promises, his power, his past record of working in history. But maybe the obvious question for someone would be, if God has already promised to do it, why pray for it? We'll come back to that question at the end of our passage. But for now, we can notice that although God has promised to bring the exiles back, he hasn't done it yet. And scripture tells us that our God is both a sovereign God and also a God who chooses to respond to the prayers of his people. In other words, God has set up this world so that he is fully in charge. And at the same time, the prayers of his people are powerful and effective. We're not told how those two truths fit together, but we're told they do fit together. And that means we must take seriously our responsibility to pray, like Daniel did. But it also means we should be very, very careful about saying things like, prayer moves the hand of God. Yes, there is a sense in which that's true. But we should never imagine that our prayers can make God do something he hasn't already planned to do. As if God's waiting to hear our prayers so he can make his to-do list for the day or the week. The outcome of history does not depend on what you and I pray for. Thankfully. 
Yes, God does move in response to our prayers. But his every move is also in line with his eternal, unchangeable purposes and plans. What that means is that we should work hard to pray in line with God's purposes. Our prayers should be offered in response to God's word, asking for what God has promised. Now we come to the content of Daniel's prayer. In the first half of this model prayer, he acknowledges human guilt and unworthiness before a faultless God. In verses 4 to 14. Look down to verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. In the first half of his prayer, Daniel alternates between honest confession of human guilt an affirmation of God's guiltlessness. God is righteous. Israel is not. Remember Daniel's situation at the age of 14 or so, he was taken away from his homeland. At this point, he's probably in his 80s. We know that his heart is still in Jerusalem. And yet he's had to live most of his life away from Jerusalem. You and I in that situation might be tempted to say, you haven't treated me fairly, God. I didn't deserve this. I've been faithful to you. How could you let this happen to me? In fact, isn't that often how we feel when suffering comes along? Whether it's illness or unemployment, or the unfaithfulness of friends or family. It's not fair. But Daniel's attitude is different. He believes God is sovereign, but he does not blame God. No, Daniel understands that the fault lies with Israel. Look down to verse 10. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, or kept the laws he gave us through his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. In other words, Daniel says, I know my own suffering is not God's fault. It's just the outworking of human sin. It's the consequence of human disobedience. I'm in exile not because God is unfair, but because Israel rebelled against him. We are not Israelites, 
but our situation is similar. Suffering comes to us not because God is unfair, but because this world is in rebellion against him. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. Suffering is a result of humanity's rebellion. It touches you and me because we live in a rebellious, broken world. Sin has consequences. Innocent people suffer. Not because God is unfair, but because men and women rebel against God. They refuse to submit to his good, loving authority. They refuse to believe that the one who made us knows what's best for us. I said innocent people suffer, but the truth is, you or I may be innocent in certain specific circumstances, but in the end, none of us are innocent. We all have rebellious hearts. None of us deserve health or an income or stable relationships or salvation. Daniel knew that. The first half of his prayer sets out his core conviction. God is above reproach. We are only getting what we deserve. And when we come to pray, we need to have the same conviction. We don't approach God with the attitude that he owes us, that he's wronged us somehow and needs to put it right. We don't come to argue that we really deserve better than we're getting from him. We must acknowledge that when it comes to righteousness of our own, we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's how God describes the spiritual state of Christians in the book of Revelation. We deserve nothing but judgment from God. He is righteous and just. We are not. But Daniel knows about another aspect of God's character. He is a merciful God. And so in verses 15 to 19, Daniel appeals for action based on a desire for God's glory and a belief in God's mercy. Daniel knows God is merciful because he has shown his mercy before. Look at verse 15. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. Daniel points back to the Exodus, a previous time when God's people were in slavery in a foreign land. But God delivered them, unworthy as they were. Daniel says, you've shown mercy before, Lord. I plead with you to do it again. But notice again what Daniel appeals to. He doesn't claim that he and his people deserve to be delivered. No, he says again in verse 15, we have sinned, we have done wrong. So why then would God have mercy on them? For the sake of his own reputation. That's what Daniel says. Look at verse 16. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger. Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. Your city, your holy hill, our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear 
the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel does not plead on the basis of human worthiness. He pleads on the basis of God's merciful character. He pleads on the basis of his desire to see God's name honored. As we've been looking at Luke's gospel in the mornings, we've heard Jesus call to seek first the kingdom. And surely this is at the heart of what it means to seek the kingdom. We live and pray and work with God's glory and honor in our minds as our motivation. We want to see men and women trust in Jesus for God's sake. We want our church fellowship to grow for God's sake so that his name and reputation will be honored and glorified. And if we come to pray with this focus, Won't it change what we pray for? How many prayer meetings have you been in where the prayers are all about Aunt Lily's bad back or Uncle Jim's bad toenail? I'm not saying it's wrong to pray about those things, but maybe one reason our prayer meetings can seem dead is because we're not really motivated by a desire for God's glory. We pray maybe because we want to feel more comfortable. We want that new job. Again, I'm not saying those kind of prayers are wrong. But don't we need a bigger vision when we pray? Let's plead with God to save our sons and daughters, our parents, our neighbors. And let's ask him to do it for his sake, not because we deserve it, not because he owes us, but because we want to see one more, ten more, ten thousand more people praising God's name. And let's ask him confidently, because we know he's a merciful God. He has shown his mercy time and again in history, and supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, at this point, Daniel's prayer is interrupted. Gabriel arrives, God's messenger, bringing God's response. In verses 20 to 27. In verse 20, Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. 
Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Gabriel gives an assurance that God hears. And this is a pretty remarkable scene. Gabriel is out of breath. He's come in swift flight. In verse 23, he says, As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. What that means is that Daniel was still confessing Israel's sin when God sent an answer. Daniel had not even got to his request before Gabriel was sent with an answer to his request. At the very least, that tells us that the words we use in prayer are less important than the state of our heart when we come to prayer. Our attitude in approaching God matters more than getting our vocabulary right. God did not need for Daniel to wait for Daniel to spell it all out. He saw Daniel's heart. And that should encourage us in prayer. It's the principle David spells out in Psalm 51. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We may not get our words right, but God sees the heart behind the words. Is it a broken heart? Is it a heart relying on God's mercy, seeking his glory? Or is it a proud, self-righteous heart, a bitter heart? That's what makes the difference. We said earlier that we need to be very careful when we talk about our prayers moving God's hand. And here we see that one of the great results of prayer is actually that it changes us. In true prayer, we grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's doing. What Daniel prayed for was a decree from the king that would send the exiles back to Jerusalem. What God actually gives him is bigger insight and understanding into God's plans. That's how Gabriel puts it in verse 22. I said earlier that what happens to Daniel is a little bit like climbing a mountain with your eyes fixed on one peak, only to get there and find out it's not the peak at all. The summit is still above you. God is saying to Daniel, you've been focused on the promise that after 70 years, the exiles will return. That's been the limit of your horizon. You thought that was the climax. That was the summit of my plan. But God says, let me show you, Daniel, the true height of my plans, the true extent of my purposes. So in verses 24 to 27 we find an insight into the greater heights of God's plans. Verse 24, the angel says, Seventy sevens are now decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, 
there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. If you read any books on Daniel, you will find a tangled mass of interpretations when it comes to these verses. One commentator has described it as a dismal swamp of interpretations. Maybe you already feel cross-eyed just reading through these verses. So rather than making your head spin even more by giving you a list of all those interpretations, I'm going to give you just the one I think best fits the text here. If you want to read all the wrong interpretations, you can find a study Bible. There'll probably be a chart in there giving them all to you. Actually, I'm not claiming that I can give you the definitive interpretation. But what I can do is give you what seems to me at least to be the most straightforward way to understand the text here. And it's worth noticing or mentioning too that for all the disagreement over one or two of the details here, there is general agreement about the basic picture Gabriel is presenting. So don't despair and imagine it's impossible to get a grasp on the meaning of these verses. They are difficult, but by and large, the general picture is clear. And it would be a shame to miss the general picture because we're bogged down in the disputable details. Verse 24 is a summary of the more detailed picture in verses 25 to 27. Remember, Daniel has been focused on God's promise about 70 years of exile. Here, Gabriel says, let me tell you, there are 77s yet to come in God's plan. In other words, you haven't seen the half of what God has in store. 70 times 7 is 490. But as far as I know, no interpreter takes these as a literal time period. What's going on is a little bit like Jesus' answer to Peter's question in the New Testament. Peter said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or the translation might be 70 times seven. The point of Jesus' answer there is not that Peter should forgive 77 times, or 490 times, and then stop forgiving. No, the point is, he should forgive on a much grander scale than he had previously thought. And I think that's also the point of the 77s here in Daniel 9. Gabriel is saying, don't just look at this little point in history, Daniel. Think on a grander scale. God does. 
So the 77s are a way of talking about the rest of human history. And Gabriel mentions what's still to come in human history. Verse 24. Sin will be put to an end. Sin will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up. That probably means they will be finally fulfilled in an ultimate way. And the most holy one will be anointed. That's the summary of what God has planned. It will be fulfilled during the rest of history. In other words, between Daniel's day and the very end of history. Then in verse 25, Gabriel assures Daniel that God will keep his promise about the return from exile. He mentions the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And sure enough, the first verse in the book of Ezra says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. God keeps his promises. But look how Gabriel puts the the return from exile in the context of the rest of history. He has spoken about 77s. The decree and the rebuilding of the temple take up only the first of those sevens in God's timetable. Then after another 62 sevens, the anointed one will come. The anointed one is the Messiah, the Christ. Seven plus 62 equals 69. The point is, Daniel is being told that as important as the rebuilding of the temple is to God, it's not really that important. It's much less important than the arrival of the anointed one. When he comes, God's plans are close to their climax, as close as 69 is to 70. So if you're still with me, We've said there's general agreement that the 77s is not meant to be a literal number of weeks or years. It's a way of talking about the whole of the rest of history. The rebuilding of the temple that has filled Daniel's horizon takes up the equivalent of one of those sevens. Then the Messiah will come after another 62 sevens. His arrival is close to the climax of God's plans. There's only one seven left of the 70. But, verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The translation in the NIV footnote may be better. The anointed one will be cut off, but not for himself. 
You can see that down at the bottom of your page if you have the NIV. And interpreters understand this as a reference to Jesus' death. He was cut off, but not for himself. Not for any guilt of his own. He died for the sins of others. That is how God would fulfill his plan to atone for sin. His son would die as our substitute. In Daniel's visions back in chapter 7 and chapter 8, God revealed that at the end of history, a powerful ruler would arise. He would set himself up in God's place. He would oppress God's people. That seems to be who the rest of our chapter is referring to, the rest of verses 26 and 27. Now certainly there is disagreement about that. Some see the ruler in these verses as the final anti-God figure. Some see him as just one of the long line of anti-God figures throughout history. But in any case, the basic point is the same. Since the cross of Christ, the world has been made ready for the end of history. If the whole of God's plan from Daniel to the end can be represented by 70 sevens, then 69 of those sevens have already been worked out. God has opened up a way for men and women to be reconciled to him. On the cross, Jesus made atonement for sin. As the song says, the great redeeming work is done. The grand and full atonement made. God for a guilty world has died. There is only one more work to be done. That's the return of the risen, anointed king. The day when he returns to finally crush all evil. The day when he leads his people into an eternity in the true holy city, the new heaven and earth. Whether that day comes one week from now or 10 or 20 years from now or 600 years from now, God's plan has only one more great stage. The tapestry of history has only one more great scene, the return of the king. This chapter is about prayer. And earlier we asked, if God has already promised to do something, why pray for it? Well, one of the great lessons of this chapter is that prayer is just as much about changing us as it is about changing our circumstances. Daniel studied his Bible. He saw a great mountain peak among God's plans. The promise of a return from exile after 70 years. He gave himself to prayer. He came with a humble heart. He came with a desire for God's glory. With a reliance on God's mercy. He prayed for what God had promised to do. And what happened? His perspective was changed. His eyes were lifted up to see the greater heights of God's plans. A cross where sin would be atoned for. And a future day when sin and death would finally die. 
Prayer is just as much about changing us as it is about changing our circumstances. Prayers like Daniel's bring us into deeper fellowship with the God of history. And in fellowship with him, we take on more of his perspective. We see further than our own little dreams and ambitions. And by his grace, we become a little more like him. So let's pray with God's great plan in mind. Let's make sure we're ready for the end of history. And let's respond now as we sing, let the earth resound with songs of praise.